Hi, I'm Jim Martin, presenter here at Adventure Rider Radio. If you enjoy the show, we could really use your support in helping get our patron account up to better support what we do here each month. For as little as the price of a cup of coffee and a muffin each month, you could help make this show, literally make it. The show is built on a model of a mix of advertising and listener support to make it work. And we've got some great companies on the show right now advertising. But now I'd like to ask you for your support. I really like this model of supporting what you like and what you listen to or watch because it allows us to channel very small amounts of money towards what we want, directly support the things that we want and we love to listen to or watch or whatever the case may be. So if you enjoy Adventure Rider Radio, become a part of our support team by dropping by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Click on the support button and sign up for our monthly patron support option. And remember... That support is only once a month. So in that time period, we produce at least four episodes. Some months we do five. So if you break it down per episode, it's peanuts. And you can put any amount you want. Anyway, we'd really appreciate it if you'd do that. Thanks very much. On with this week's episode. Well, many riders love a challenge, from rider skills to traveling on a specific bike that makes the trip more difficult or maybe demanding uh, a higher skill level of themselves. So if you ride a vintage bike around the world, you can imagine that parts and breakdowns is probably going to be your challenge. Um, Even a sidecar rig offers some challenge as far as getting it maybe on and off boats, flying at places, and as well as a bunch of benefits too. But traveling with animals, well, that's another type of challenge altogether. But it's not unheard of because unlike an old bike or a sidecar setup that may require some hunting for parts or finding new ways of transporting your rig, traveling with animals becomes not only a logistical problem, you know, with dealing with the animals themselves, the food, the waste, things like that, but unlike a vintage bike, animals are screened at border crossings and they need to be kept contained on your bike when you stop just about anywhere. So they need a lot of supervision at your campsite, at hotels. And what about other cultures and how they view animals? There's a lot of different things to deal with here. Well, you probably have been imagining a dog as I'm talking about an animal because we've had travelers on the show in the past with dogs like Aragoregian and his dog Spirit, which sadly has passed away recently. But today we're going to talk about someone who picked up a scraggly, flea-ridden cat that nobody wanted, put it on his motorcycle, and decided to travel with it. He's managed to get it from one country to another by all means, including smuggling. Stay with us for that. But first, we're going to talk about a filter for your motorcycle that you're not going to want to travel without after you hear this. If you're ever worried about getting a bad batch of fuel in your gas tank, you should be, because most bikes nowadays with fuel injection have a filter inside their tank that is an absolute dog to get at. Well, to avoid those problems there is a filter out now that you can use around home or when you're traveling and i really think that you're not going to want to leave home without it stay with us for more my name is jim martin this is adventure rider radio stay with us we got a good one for you
Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any bag into motorcycle luggage with this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, which has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com the MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hedstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ruff. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeBell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method, and the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio, made in the USA, and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Fuel is obviously a big deal for us motorcyclists, getting the right grade and making sure we get the good quality fuel. But dirty fuel is an even bigger deal because what can begin as a a nice ride can end up being a total nightmare with just one tank of dirty fuel. And that's whether you're close to home or on a long trip. And dirty fuel, it can be found anywhere, even your mainstream gas stations. But we found at least one solution here that, well, quite frankly, I think should be included with every motorcycle as a factory part. Okay, I am Guglielmo Ferrazzani. I, am, I was born in Italy. I came from uh, Naples in the town, south. I started actually having bad luck <laughs> with the KTM. And uh, now we're producing, uh, I would say, the most advanced fuel system, fuel filter system, air filter systems in the world. Because we just focus on protection rather than just performance. Guglielmo, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Now, you also go by Bill, right? The question is, yeah, actually, the name is Guglielmo is William in English. And since the GL is impossible to pronounce properly, myself, I cannot. I just tend to tell people, listen, call me Bill. Well, you make a fuel filter. Now, you've, you've designed this fuel filter to go into the filler neck of motorcycles. And the reason it's of such uh, interest for us here on Adventure Rider Radio is that a lot of listeners travel and go places where the chance of getting dirty fuel and I'm saying dirty fuel as in the crap in the fuel itself is really high and, and water can be found anywhere. So let's, let's start off with you describing what this filter is. 
You know, sometimes we think that the petrol is dirty only in remote areas. Uh, actually, petrol is a solvent. Wherever it goes, it takes everything along with it because it's amazingly fluid, it's very thin, and it's great at doing its job, so cleaning off the, the surfaces. So actually, when you go in remote areas, sometimes what you find is very big chunk of debris and the fuel, not small ones we have here in Europe and the US, where you have uh, a good refinery system, but uh, there is fine particles, and these will be dragged along by the fuel in your tank. What happened to me, I was traveling with my KTM, the 990 Adventure, in 2000, uh, it was the end of 2007, beginning of 2008. I was making a small tour. I was living at that time in Barcelona, Spain. I went to visit my parents and um, they were at the sea at that time in Liguria, Italy. I got stranded through, traveling through France. I couldn't believe it. The bike was brand new, not even 10,000 kilometers. And I stopped, I removed the fuel pump, which was a mess, and everything was dark. And I was thinking, okay, that's something wrong. Maybe I, I was refueling and you know, they cheated me or something. And I started to check what was going on. After 5,000 kilometers, I got stranded again, this time in Spain. And it was again for blocked fuels, fuel feeders, sorry. And this drove me mad. And from that moment, I started studying what, what was happening and why was happening this to the new bikes. Because in the, in the past, when we had carburetors, it was, you know, easy peasy. You could uh, maybe, yes, find something dirty, some big chunks in the tank, but you could easily clean it, you know, dismantle the carburetor, spend a nice evening with your friends with a beer. But now it's so easy. I mean, what we find out is that uh, electronic fuel injection on cars works perfectly, but bikes have been designed to be more compact. So we don't have the big units, we don't have the more uh, strong fuel pumps. We have a more delicate system, which lasts longer than carburetors, even though nobody believes it, but needs much more attention. And, uh, you know, in the end, it's all about this, all protection. I tried to design a filter that could easily installed either on a new bike or on an old bike. We cover, at the moment, 97% of all produced bike in the world. And, but that could, you know, effectively protect both electronic fuel injection bikes and carburetor bikes. So describe the filter itself. Well, it's, um, the concept is keep everything clean. So keep the dirt outside the tank. Once you, put, once you install the filter, you separate the tank and the fuel pump, which now at the moment is in, in the tanks because of safety reason. Uh, due to safety reasons, sorry. <laughs> Forgive my English. <laughs> anyway, and uh, so what you do, it's, you, you create a, sort of a chamber where all the dirt and the water will be trapped inside the filter and do not reach the pump itself. So while you're refueling... The fuel will go through the filter and uh, all the dirt and um, the fine particles down to 12 microns, and in some cases below 10 microns, will be trapped in the matrix of the filter. Plus the water, the free water, will be just floating inside the filter because it cannot go through the membrane. And whatever reaches the fuel pump and the fuel filter, it's actually clean fuel. Whatever the fuel and the fuel filter will, no problem, uh, process and push toward the injection system. So basically what we're talking about here is a, is a fabric sack that is slid into the fuel filler neck and it sits in there. So when you're pumping the fuel in, it pumps into the sack and forces the fuel through the sack and that's where the filtering process happens. Yes, exactly. Usually it's called the sock, a filter sock. Okay, so the filter the shape sock. Is, uh, exactly. So when, when it gets dirty, you can just simply pull this sock out 
empty it out, clean it out, and you're reusing it. You know, there are three things that people keep asking me continuously. First of all, how long do they last? Second, am I supposed to check if they are clean or not? And third, do I have to clean them often? And the answer actually is always the same. Let them work. We designed this matrix to be um, not only long-lasting because a filter is almost a lifelong uh, item, but the more dirty it will get, uh, the better it will start filtering. We made sure that, uh, let's call it the poor, okay? Uh, whatever it's uh, not uh, this media will be a small hole where the fuel, uh, the fluid can pass through. The more dirty will accumulate at the rims of these holes, the smaller the hole will be, but the fluid will go through. This means that from 12 microns, you go down to eight microns while the filter gets dirtier. If you clean it, which you can, but you shouldn't, the filter will get down to eight microns and below yet, and it will be better and better with the kilometers. So you start buying, you, with, you start buying a very good filter, you end up with a very nice filter system. So how do you know when you are supposed to clean it then? Uh, the filter has a huge enemy, it's tar. Once tar has reached the filter, it will laminate it and there is nothing that can go through it. But unless you really have the filter going very, very slow, which means dozen of minutes just to let pass a couple of, c of CCs, let the filter work. Another very nice part of this filter is that the water will not pass in big quantities. Small quantities are just uh, normal in the, in the petrol. You have up to 4% of normal good water in the petrol, which will also enrich the combustion make it stronger because of the oxygen added to the uh, explosion. But when there is too much water, the fuel cannot pass where the water is. So you will suddenly realize that they are cheating you because the filter will become very slow, very fast. You have to stop, take out the filter, check what's going on, and maybe, you know, call the police and <laughs> or leave the, <laughs> the petrol station at once. So how does the, the filter work? You talked about the tiny holes. So basically what we're looking at is, is a fabric that is um, it's just a very fine fabric that you've made into a sock. That's the basic um, filter itself. Well, all filters are basically just this very thin matrix or articulate or, you know, um, you can also imagine it as a, as a cloth, you know, with thread and uh, overlocking to, you know, onto each other until you have very small holes in between. Our is not a cloth because it's um, a special matrix developed by a process. And uh, this makes the holes not only very small, but also very precise. And uh, statistically, they are also precise in the position where they are again, uh, in comparison to the rest of the other holes. So it's a complex, but they're also very geometrically symmetric matrix, which makes it fast and very effective. But the concept is that whatever, the fuel can go only through the holes. The smaller the hole, the better the filtration will be. And when you stitch this thing together, how do you stop the, the stitch holes from actually puncturing the, the fabric and, and letting things go through? Well, technology at this moment gives us five choices. The first is having a thread, which is self-sealing. It's, it's used uh, also in clothing when you have the Gore-Tex or other compounds that where they have Teflon on the thread. While passing through, the Teflon melts and closes up the holes. It's not our case because our matrix is not based on a compound. It's not um, uh, with lamination process like uh, Gore-Tex uh, cloth, for example. Then you have uh, welding systems. 
Then you have seamless systems, which is just welding the, the, the system with the uh, laser, for example. In our case, it's a double process. We have microsone with special low-point uh, um, thread, plus uh, we have a welding process. So all our feeders are welded shut. Now you have these available for most motorcycles? Models? 97% all over, all over, of all motorcycles ever produced in the world. 97%? Yep. Wow, that's great. And Thank you. <laughs> what, what's the installation like? The installation, the most complex installation would require to dismantle the plastics, remove the fuel cap, and install the filter below the fuel cap. This is the most complicated. And is that more difficult for something like um, an F800 that has one of the snap-down lids? Is that one of the more complicated ones? No, that one is the easiest. It's a mag system. Uh, there are... Uh, eight magnets, each of it uh, can hold up to 2.2 kilograms, and you open the lid, install the filter, which will snap instantly to the walls, and you can remove it. It's very strong. Mm. That's the easiest one. Wow. Or you have the screw cap, like big Enduros or the EMS, Clark, Safari tanks, or a service, the one you know, with the clock mm -hmm. screw, and that's also very easy. The one I was referring to, for example, is the KTM 1190, because there are, the, the filter sits below the Filler, the neck filler inside the tank. It's just because of the shape of neck filler. While otherwise the BMW uh, 1200, for example, the newest generation, the liquid cooled, you open the cap, you push down the adapter and it self-block inside the hole. So for the most part, it, it's a very simple installation. It's just dropping it in just with a few models where you're going to have to do a little bit more work, but none of it's very complicated. Sure. No, there is no modification necessary to any kind of, of uh, you know, neck or uh, there are no holes to be drilled. Uh, no attachment required is very simple. It sounds to me like something that the motorcycle manufacturers left out and should have had. Uh, I mean, okay, of course, you don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want that. No, but what no. I'm saying is it seems like such a basic, like why would you want to get crap in a gas tank and have to deal with pulling your, your fuel filter out when you can stop it right at the beginning? It just, it, to me, it's, it seems like a no-brainer. Okay, um, I have to answer to this with a small story. I think you're pretty young, so I don't know if you know the key uh, BMW created in the 80s, maybe the most reliable engine ever built. It was called the flat engine. I don't know if you know the key version, the 11, the 100, yeah, 1100. The flying brick. Exactly. That engine was basically designed to run, I think it was 1 million miles, sort of, a bike. And rumor is that suddenly the dealers said, you know, BMW, very nice, very classy, we love it. Can you stop producing it? Because they never break down. <laughs> so the point is, um, we are in a world where you need to change parts, you need the whole process. If you stop buying, buying parts, the whole world will collapse. I know it sounds creepy, but no, you need maintenance on bikes and, uh, and parts. So uh, you need to change all the fuel filters. What we would like, maybe we would have liked the big, uh, big brothers and sisters to do would have been to have less delicate systems. Okay, I have to change my fuel filter. Fine, but please don't let me strand it somewhere in the middle of nowhere without knowing that something will happen. Most of the, the recent bikes, also coming from Japan, they have such strange fuel filters that they cannot be changed. So suddenly you're in the middle of nowhere and you take down the fuel pump, you find very tiny components, plastics mainly, that if you try to take them apart, they will crumble in your hands. And this is, in my opinion, very bad because we are a huge community. We love to travel. We are 
we're not, you know, we're bikers. More miles means more fun. And you have to trust your vehicle. You have to trust all components on it. Otherwise, there is no fun anymore. And I agree with you. It should be a standard issue on, on bikes. But I suppose that for the, for the most part, we are still seen as, uh, as customers, not as uh, riders. I don't know if I can, if I express my concept. You know, we are just there to buy new stuff, not really to enjoy what we bought, mm. as we were supposed to change it every six months. So what you're doing is upsetting the natural balance of economics for the motorcycle companies. I'm not sure that's a good thing for them. <laughs> they will come after me eventually. I know it. <laughs> I was speaking with Guglielmo Ferrazzani from Google Tech Filters in Italy. But here's the thing. When we found this filter, I got very excited about it for all the reasons that you just heard us talk about there. And I got further excited because I found that it's distributed in North America. So if you're here, you can order it here. And then again, because it's actually one of our advertisers that has it. It's Best Rest Products is the distributor for us. So if you want the filter, just go to Best Rest Products. You can order it right there. But it, to me, it seems like something that we all should have on our motorcycles could just save you so much heartache. Um, not an ad for it. This is um, a filter that we found, but we were very pleased to find it's available at Best Rest. And of course, that link is on our website and in our show notes. Off-Grid Moto designs and manufactures adventure-specific motorcycle luggage. They make them in the U.S. totally on-site, which means they can do changes to them and repairs, etc., all right on-site. Small outfit, making really slick-looking bags. These are soft bags with roll tops on them, lots of strapping on them to fasten other things in the Molly system, which is the, uh, the military measurement system where you can strap on other bags to it. They're um, water-resistant bags. They look extremely tough, really high-quality stitching. And I was looking on their website, and I thought it was interesting to see what their customers are saying. One named Jason has written in and said three words, bling customer service. As a last-minute customer buying a $35 bag, I was treated like a customer buying $500 bags. They've got a bag on their front page there that I like a lot called the Chadwick 30-liter adventure luggage. Uh, again, the Molly system, and they're made with 1,000 denier uh, fabric with a two-layer water-resistant coating. They've got a universal mounting system and a pass-through system to allow for multiple attachment locations and off-bike carrying. So a large capacity for multi-day travel. If you're into soft luggage, even if you're not, you might want to look at these because you, you might get convinced. The website is www.org offgridmoto.com the www.offgridmoto.com of course when you're speaking with them throw in our name say you heard them here on adventure rider radio well this past weekend i was out riding my bike again one of the first really nice weekends that we've had for the season to camp out for me and a, a buddy and i gotta tell you i feel sorry for my ims pegs because I just beat them so hard. I dropped the bike and it went slamming down. Of course, the peg got the worst of it and it just folds down and keeps on going. I mean, you, when you look at the thing, you can't even tell that I've done anything to it. And I think that really says something about IMS quality. They've been around since 1976. They've got a full line of adventure motorcycle pegs from the slightly larger peg to a huge peg for adventure bikes designed for us to help us with control with the motorcycles. And remember that a quality design peg is not just a wider peg. That, that's not even it. That's not even the bare minimum. Don't even look at those. 
look at the IMS pegs. I'm running them now on my bike. I really don't think you could possibly go wrong with them. www.imsproducts.com. www.imsproducts.com. And make sure when you're talking to them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Honestly, I'm not sure if I should be introducing Martin, the motorcycle traveler, or Mowgli, the cat traveler, because from what I can tell, Mowgli is the one that's calling the shots on this one. My name is Martin, Martin Klauke. I'm from uh, Germany. And what do I do? I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, uh, right now I'm traveling. I started uh, quite a big road trip in August last year. Um, I started in Germany and drove my motorbike 13,000 kilometers all the way to Dubai. Um, just to change my life and see where it takes me. Just to get out of the, out of the cycle, out of the normal life going to work Monday and Friday. Um, yes, I made it to Dubai. I am working on picking up money right now because I'm quite broke, to be honest. I just got my work visa. I got a job. Um, I'm working here till July. And the plan is then to go to India, uh, India and Nepal. My friend is going to join me. I have a very good friend in Dubai that I'm staying with right now. And after that, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'll have to have to really see what's happening. Martin, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Oh, thanks for having me. Where did you get into motorcycling? Um, it's something I always really enjoyed. Um, being on a motorbike or just uh, just thinking about riding it, I kind of always feel like a kid um, that's really eager to do something. Like I get the tingling in my hands and my butt and I want to go. I want to get on it. So I started riding little motorbikes 50 cc's when i was a kid when i was maybe like 12 years old and what we would do is we would go in the um, in the woods and just you know just go off-roading and uh, go out with friends try to get away from police or whatever is trying to catch us <laughs> and at the end of the day because they were like old gdr engines they were like 30 40 year old bikes we would always like have a session where we would just um you know sit together in a workshop and try to fix whatever went wrong and there was always something to fix. So I've done that for a while and got my license, uh, my first license in Germany. You have to get two, like a smaller license and the bigger one. So I got the smaller one when I was 16. Um, didn't ride much because I didn't have a bike, just a small 50cc. And got the bigger one when I was 18 and uh, got a 125cc Suzuki. And yeah, it broke after maybe two months. The cylinders were gone and um, I didn't have a bike again. So all I could think of then when I was th thinking about motorbikes was like a, a street bike, something that is very fast and um, I knew I wouldn't be able to pull myself together. Um, I would have probably killed myself on it. So I made the decision not to buy a bike and to just let it be for a while. So I haven't been riding since I was 18. I'm uh, 32 now. Um, haven't 
Yeah, I haven't been riding at all. So, so what you're I'm, saying is you started out life as a criminal with your motorcycle. You're evading police. Oh. <laughs> yeah, no, well, you know. What, uh, that always sounds so bad, you know, when you were trying to, you were trying to stay away from police as they chased you. I assume because you're well, riding you, your, your motorcycle, your dirt bike somewhere you shouldn't Yeah, be. well, like uh, 12, 13 years old, the uh, bikes weren't registered. Uh, we probably didn't even wear a helmet. The lights were not working and whatever, like they were not... Not safe to ride, I guess, in a sense. And did they ever catch so, you? Uh, no, they had these big enduro bikes with the backs on the side. And we had these Splint 50 cc's and we were in the middle of the woods. So we just escaped through the woods. They never got us. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're a successful criminal as well. You managed to evade capture. Absolutely, absolutely, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you got away from bikes for a while, but then you decided to, to go on a trip. Sort of give us an idea of what made you decide to break away. I was in, uh, two th- in 2015, and uh, it was kind of my first attempt of, of escaping normal life, I guess. Um, I went to Southeast Asia for three months, and we did with a good friend of mine, and we did a road trip down there um, using buses, tuk-tuks, um, boats, ferries, whatever we could find. We are just traveling through Thailand, Myanmar, Laos, Vietnam, and Cambodia. And in Cambodia, like we read about these people that um, ride their motorbikes through Vietnam, and we're like... Just thinking about this, we were like really happy already. Um, but then we read up a bit more on it and it, was, it seemed quite dangerous. So we weren't sure what we were going to do. But then at some point we just got the, uh, made the decision, okay, we're going to go up to Hanoi. We're going to buy bikes there. And I actually got the bike right on my birthday. I kind of found its way to me, which was nice. We were doing some sightseeing and then there's a Swedish dude pushing a 100... Yeah, 100cc Honda Win uh, with a sign on it that says for sale. So I got the bike for $200. Um, the next day we got another bike for my friend. And they're really crappy bikes. Like they've probably done like 500,000 kilometers and everything has been replaced already. So they break down a lot and we ended up going like at least 15 times to the mechanic and getting something fixed in one month. Hang on, hang on. Back, up, we, back up to that part where you said the guy shows up with a bike with a sign. You know, we... Got to Hanoi, um, things went kind of going uh, going good. Like we spent 36 hours on the bus, we were exhausted. Um, we were like scammed at least five times in a row, which was really annoying because they had like new things that we didn't know about, um, fake taxis and all that. And um, instead of looking for a bike, which we really wanted to do because we wanted to get out of Hanoi, we kind of ended up in a bar and spent the night there and got up late the next morning and uh, it seemed like we're not going to find a, uh, a bike this day. And I really wanted to see that um, that prison there, the Hualo prison. And yeah, we went to see the prison and just as we were finished on the way out, there's a Swedish backpacker. He just rid, uh, rode this bike from Saigon up to Hanoi and he wanted to sell it and I wanted to buy it. so. You know, it's just lucky he came along. I liked the bike and he sold it to me. And he's got a good friend of him um, who rode with him and he had a second bike. So the second bike my friend got. So instead of looking for bikes, we really just went out and uh, enjoyed ourselves, had fun. And the bikes found us. And that's how we got our bikes in Vietnam. <laughs> was he literally pushing it towards you with a sign on it that says for sale? Yeah, not towards me. He was parking it in the prison and the reception area. And he was also visiting the same prison. And uh, he came out and wanted to push it out to start it and go back to his hostel. And we came out at the same time. So we just saw the sign on it that said for sale. Yeah, so we got it. 
So delivered right to you. So do you think that's um, a law of attraction or something? Um, it's generally speaking, it's something that uh, happens quite often to me. Um, I guess it's when you just let things happen, when you don't push things and you don't force things, you just have something that you want to do, but you don't uh, force anything. You just let it happen. Things normally do find their way to me. So it's um, kind of an attitude in life, I guess. So at this time, again, it worked out. And um, that's also kind of how I made it to Dubai. I just kind of start and then I see where this goes. Oh, so you, you started out that way. You got the bike and then just sort of went off exploring. So yeah, we just got the bike and we just started out. We didn't know anything. We didn't know the roots. We didn't know about the culture. We didn't literally didn't know anything. Didn't know any Vietnamese. Uh, we didn't even know whether we would be allowed to drive. I think we weren't, but um, no one really cares. So yeah. So so this was the um, this was a small trip you did. Then you went back home. Yeah, that was a trip through Vietnam. We drove it for three thousand kilometers, three thousand seventy-seven kilometers through Vietnam, and got down to Saigon. And it was at that moment when I kind of decided I really, really, really want to travel on a motorbike. It just makes it so much different when you travel on a motorbike compared to having a bus or a flight or whatever that brings you to all the tourist destinations. Like um, the people that you meet on the way, um, the experiences that you make, the problems that you get into and uh, the way you kind of solve them and get out of them, it just completely changes. So I really wanted to do it on the bike. Also, it was a lot of fun, obviously. So um, I got back home from that trip in 2015 and uh, started looking for a bike. I got a Honda there, a Honda NTV, just because it was cheap and I was around. I drove that for a year and in the meantime I did some research on uh, what bike I wanted to have and I came up with my Africa twin. Um, while I was preparing and getting the bike, um, I figured I would just go and visit my good friend in Dubai and take things from there. What about work? Um, I quit my job and I quit my flat. I sold things that I could sell. I gave away things that I could give away. I still have like three boxes of things, but um, that's it. I just got rid of everything, freed myself from all that stuff that no one needs really and um, got going. And what was the plan at that point? Just to start, if if you make a plan, then pretty much it's not going to work out. What about the whole money thing, you know, trying to figure out if you have enough money to get where you want to go, all of that stuff in advance? How, how did you think that through? Um, well, I did save up some money. I was generally living fairly cheap. I didn't buy anything that I didn't need. Um, yeah, I was living very basic, so I just saved up as much money as I could. And I figured I would, I would definitely have enough to get to Dubai. Worst case scenario to afford a flight back to Germany. And that's what I had. So I just um, started hoping that I'm going to make some money here. And um, yeah, really excited to just like a movie to just watch what's going to happen to my life once I, I do that first step. And once I start going, just to see where that goes. Well, somewhere along your travels, you came across a stray cat. Can you talk about that first encounter? That was actually before this trip to Dubai. Um, that was um, in two, uh, 2000, uh, 2017. 
Um, my friend asked me if I want to come on a little trip to Morocco. He wanted to go through the Atlas Mountain and um, I figured I would have enough money to just do this trip and get some more experience on the bike as well because really I don't have that much experience. So I figured it would be a good practice. And on the second last day of that trip, just as we're on our way back, um, we met some people that we met earlier. So we're having a bit of a get together and then uh, that little cat comes up. She was full with fleas. She was in a bad shape and bad health. Uh, and she was kind of starving. She didn't have any food and she was really, really um, skinny. And she came up to me and she laid down on my arm and uh, just fell asleep. She was very cold too. So, you know, she just really needed a warm and a safe place to to get some energy. So I carried her around the whole evening with me. People were laughing at me. They were making fun of me. and Because it's covered in fleas. It's a street cat. It's a street cat. It's not normal in Morocco. Like people wouldn't wouldn't even feed them. So they don't have empathy towards street cats, I guess, because there's so many of them too. And I tried to figure out where their mother would be and they laughed and they told me that it was run over by a car. And I asked, what's going to happen to this cat now? Like, is anybody going to feed it? Like, what's usually, what's the normal course of action here? And they laughed again. They said, oh, well, it's going to die. So I felt really sorry at that point. And, um, you know, she obviously took a liking to me. So um, I just smuggled her into a hotel and uh, went for a night of sleep and thought I'm going to make up my mind in the morning. And when I got up in the morning, it was still the same situation, I guess. And um, I was like, well, if you want to come with me, then you're going to have to ride the motorbike. Um, yeah, that's when I put her on. And So what do you, you got this cat that's all covered in fleas and sort of dirty looking cat. What do you do with it in the hotel room? You try and deflee it? No, just, um, yeah, just took it with me in my bed. And she was actually sleeping under the blanket. Uh, just took one for the team, I guess, and <laughs> <laughs> um, had her there. <laughs> it's just the idea of sleeping with the flea-ridden cat. <laughs> it just, uh, yeah, yeah that's You should have seen her. You should have seen her, though. Like, she was very cute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess I've done worse. <laughs> <laughs> so then you decide, so, you're, okay, yeah. that's it. You're going to take the cat, and you've got to figure out. Now, now, for anybody who knows cats, I think most people do, you realize that a cat is probably not going to go on a motorcycle very well at all. What did it do when you put it on the bike? Well, that's what I thought. And I thought, well, I'm just going to give it a try and then uh, just see what happens. And um, she was scared about the first half an hour. I mean, we did take to dirt roads just right in the beginning. beginning. So the first thing she she rode on was actually dirt roads. And she was quite scared. She peed in it. She shot in it. And um, I put some paper in. And then the next time I wanted to change the paper, she didn't do it anymore. She just kind of got used to it. She did try to come out and jump off the bike right in the beginning after maybe like 10 minutes. I put her back in and then she just stayed in and she accepted it. Um, after about half an hour, maybe she was, you know, she was fine. I opened it. She came out. She like smelled what's around. She looked around and she went playing in the grass and uh, stayed around me because she felt safe. And so there was only the border to cross, obviously. Because um, it is quite dangerous to smuggle a cat from Morocco to Germany. Um, that went well, too. And <laughs> hang, hang on a second. What do you mean that went well? So you said it's it's dangerous to smuggle a cat. So you took it through the normal channels and, and, and got it approved? No, you can't. It's impossible. 
Um, yeah, she has to be at least three months old to be vaccinated. And then uh, you can vaccinate her. Then you have to wait for at least a month to um, for the blood to kind of adapt to the vaccination to to build the antibodies. And then you have to go to a laboratory. Then you have to wait for at least another two weeks to get the results back. And so, like the earliest you can you can take her is after like maybe four months or something. And I really didn't have that time, so it was not a, it was not an option. I was just taking her, hoping that everything went well. They didn't see her, and then just just going for it, really. Yeah, don't ask, don't tell, sort of thing. As you're going through the the border yeah, check, yeah, exactly. Yeah, who would expect to look for a cat? I mean, you know, cocaine or something, maybe, but not a cat. Yeah, but you know, they they would be hiding in the same places. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. So, yeah, I guess I was quite lucky. What about when you stop somewhere and you in because cats are notorious for wandering off, like for untold amounts of time. They they do. Uh, she does. What do you have to do then? <laughs> well, you stop somewhere, the cat jumps off, and then what? Um, I have her on a leash. So if I stop somewhere to maybe like get fuel or something, uh, it just she either stays or she has to stay because she is on a leash. She doesn't have much of a choice. And then uh, um, I always, obviously try to find places where I can just let her go. So I would try to find a place where she feels safe. I always need to watch out. I need to you know, like a, go through a checklist. Um, there are shouldn't be any dogs um other cats she normally gets in fights with um there shouldn't be any cars preferably she's really really afraid of trucks she doesn't feel safe in open areas so i always have to find something where she can climb up a tree or climb up like rocks or mountains or whatever like somewhere where she feels safe so i would just try to pick a space that is um, suitable for her and then uh, I let her go and she normally, like what she does the ha- first half an hour, hour maybe, she sticks around fairly close and she comes back checking me every like five minutes. And then once she realizes I'm staying there, putting up the tent, I'm starting cooking on that, she goes wandering off and uh, she sometimes, worst case scenario, doesn't come back for a whole day. And I get really worried, obviously. Um, tried to find her. Um, I've done quite a few searches where I like, went around for hours and hours trying to find her. And I've had the coolest encounters because of that, too. <laughs> <laughs> I met so many people because of that. Like, the people were helping me. Um, there was one camping one camping ground on Albania, and I had the whole camping ground and the two camping ground next to each other. Like, everybody was looking for Mowgli. And the receptionist even called the hotel that was next to asking them if a cat wandered in. And she just came back in the evening, like as if nothing would have happened. <laughs> Typical cat. So what you're saying is the cat's traveling, really. You're just there as a support crew. That's it, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because you're stuck waiting for the cat on the cat's whim when it decides to come back. And yeah, I mean, it sort of makes you wonder why the cat doesn't worry that you're going to leave. Um, I don't know. Like, uh, she must realize that it's probably probably me worrying that she's gonna leave more than the other way around. Yeah, it's I don't know if she cat. knows, but <laughs> I've been traveling with her for 102 days on this trip, and I've done a few smaller trips before. So, um, I really can say I'm sure now that she's not gonna run off. So, if she doesn't come back, I'm actually getting really worried because there's a few things that can always happen to her. Uh, she is very curious, as cats are, so it's a big chance she gets locked into somewhere. That's probably what happened in Albania as well. Um, I did find her in a locked-up toilet cabinet in Iran one day. I'm not sure how she got in there. 
And um, there's a few times where I couldn't find her, where I'm uh, assuming she might have been locked in somewhere. So that's one thing that might happen. And then obviously somebody could do something to her. But, you know, who would do something to a cat? So. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one, but yeah, completely out of your control. So you 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 mentioned that you took her back to Germany first. Obviously, you get her vaccinated and everything there. So now oh, I got everything. Yes, yes. What's it like crossing borders now? What what procedure do you have to go through? Um, depends what border it is, really. Um, most borders are actually quite easy. In Europe, nobody really wanted to see her. They'd ask me the first time for her papers. I think when I went to Bosnia, I think. And they really just asked for it. And then when I was pulling them out, they didn't even look at the papers. They were just checking if I have any. And then they were like, okay, now go. And then uh, there was one little border in Bosnia that I couldn't cross. So it was like middle of nowhere and just a tiny border post. And this guy wasn't sure what to do with the cat. So he just sent me to the next border post. And um, it was quite easy like that. Um, when we went to Turkey, the the mom of the border official was actually around and she loved cats. So she would uh, make sure that Mowgli is okay and then just keep an eye out for Mowgli while I was doing all the paperwork. So that was quite cool. I actually took some photos with her and uh, she's really proud to hold her. So that was quite funny. And um, oh yeah, in Greece, they did ask for a passport again, but they didn't look at it once again. So then in uh, Iran, the only trouble was that I was sent from one office to another, from one counter to another, and I had to go back and forth from one building to another. So it was a lot of stress, really. That was the only problem. Um, but she was a, she was really cute then. She just endured everything. She didn't complain. She just went with it, and um, she was actually really, really nice there. And then the first time it seemed to be a problem was when I got into the UAE. Um, I was supposed to have a health certificate for her, which I didn't know, I wasn't aware of, but you could kind of see that she's healthy, like her, her fur was shining and everything, so she was definitely healthy. And I had all the vaccinations and um, it took me like two or three hours and they told me, it was like, no, it's got to go and quarantine, you need to get the certificate first. And um, I was getting quite heated up, like I obviously couldn't travel 13,000 kilometers with her through like 12 countries and then get to the last country and not being able to take her, that wasn't an option. And um, after two or three hours, they were like, okay, fine, go, you can have her. <laughs> yeah. So is that an example of, you know, if you push enough at a border, you're going to get what you want, even though it's against the rules? Um, no, that was just luck, I guess. Um, they did have uh, problems with their computers and uh, they didn't really... At some point, I um, I thought they didn't really know what they're gonna do. Like they were just asking somebody else what to do, and then this, the next person didn't know what to do. So um, I guess in the end, they were just kind of wanted to get rid of the problem and just sent me in. And she did have all the vaccinations. She has a passport vaccinations. She's chipped. She's obviously healthy and in good condition. So it was like kind of against the rules, but it was a no-brainer to that she is fine to come in. Maybe it's because that's why they decided that. I'm not sure. But I was very happy when that happened. The moment they told me that I can go, I was I was feeling so relieved, really. <laughs> Mowgli is obviously the name of the cat. That's true, yes. Now, are there times where you wish you didn't have the cat with you when you're traveling? Does it become a nuisance because it's a big part of what you're doing? Um, I never wished that I didn't take her. 
Um, mainly because there's no point. You know, if you make a decision, then there's no point in regretting the decision. It's just a new starting point, and you just take things from there and see how it turns out. So um, she did help me. She did hold me back quite a few times, and I couldn't do many things because of her. But um, you never know what would have happened if it wasn't for that. So maybe I would have gotten into a really bad situation and um, just by chance. And I didn't. Everything went well. So there's really no reason to complain. So no, I never thought that. Mowgli, the cat, led you back home one time. Can you tell us that? Ah, that's true, yes. That was a brilliant moment. Um, we were in Turkey, in um, Kabakoyu, near Oludinis, which is crazy beautiful, by the way. And it's it's this valley, the Koyu Valley, and um, all all along on the on the hill slopes on the side of the valley, um, overlooking that beautiful beach. There's uh, camps and huts and um, you know just little wooden huts um, up. Sometimes it's hotels, so it's really beautiful. You have a lot of your spot for choice and the most beautiful places to sleep, and it's cheap too. So we're at that place. I got a, I got a place to put my tent on a hillside, and then I was walking down to the beach because I really wanted to see the beach, and it's about maybe 40, 45 minutes walk away. So I started walking, and then uh, by the time I, I don't know, I made like 100 meters, and I could hear her calling for me. And uh, she never done that before, so I wasn't sure if it's what's what's happening. So I turn around and she's on that rock. She's looking at me. She's calling me. And um, well, I just called her back. It's like, well, if you want to come along, then uh, come along. I turn around. I start walking, and she actually starts coming along. That was really really cool. So she follows me all the way, almost until the beach. She did get attacked by a couple of dogs in the meantime, and. Uh, um, just before we got to the beach and she started, she ran away and then she hid and uh, there was nothing I could do. So I was just waiting really until she would calm down and I met some people there so I hung out with the people. Um, and by the time I wanted to go back up to the tent it was dark and I kind of knew that I have to go up that hill but I didn't really know left or right or like this. Many ways so I really didn't know which way to go. So um, I just started, I started walking back she follows me again and she follows me until about halfway through the hill and then at some point she just stops following me and I call her but she just refuses to, to follow me. So I turn around and she um, she starts leading the way and since I really didn't know where to go anywhere I thought I'd just give it a shot and just follow her. So she leads the way to the next turn, waits for me until I catch up. Uh, as soon as I catch up, she runs the next 10, 15 meters, waits for me again. She does it all the way until we get back to the tent. That's amazing. And with multiple turns, you'd have to know that she's doing it on purpose. She did, yeah. She went, uh, I think, I figured that she took the exact same route back that uh, we took down. And she, I, I never saw her sniffing. Like, whenever she stopped, she was just looking up and, and looking out for me. She never went down to sniff, um, maybe sniff it out where we came from. She just really seemed to know. Well, what do people think of the cat when you're traveling along? I mean, it's one thing to meet somebody who's traveling around on a motorcycle. It's another when they have a cat. That's true. Um, there's the most different uh, reactions to that. There's people who are just amazed by it. They are kind of, sometimes people are jealous because they also have cats and they would obviously like to take their cats traveling, but it's most of the times, I guess, it's not possible. 
So there's these people, and uh, um, there's other people who just think I'm stupid. <laughs> Happens a lot, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's people who literally think I'm crazy. Um, I've actually been asked if I'm crazy. Like somebody just blatantly asked me if I'm crazy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they just can't wrap their head around it. It is pretty bizarre. No, no, pe- people cannot. And uh, also if I tell somebody about it, I'm telling them, yeah, I'm a motorbike, blah, I'm going from Germany to Dubai. And it's like, are you traveling alone? Well, I have my cat with me. And people don't, when there's no reaction, you know, people just um, think they misheard you. They just can't wrap their head around it now. Until they see it, even people that I that I told about it and uh, showed some photos of the cat on the bike, like when they actually see the cat on the bike, they're like, "What the hell? Yeah, are you gonna take her? Is that, are you serious?" <laughs> My neighbors are actually like that. I told them they knew about this. They're so like, "Okay, that's cool. Yeah, yeah fine." And then um, one day when I was going camping and Mowgli was on the bike, they were like at the fence and they were like, "What the hell are you doing? Are you you're not gonna take her? Are you?" <laughs> <laughs> like they didn't. It's just a tough thing to. You know, to to think somebody's doing, I guess, which uh, makes it cool. <laughs> is there anything that the cat doesn't like about riding around? Oh, there's a lot of things. Yes, um, off road. <laughs> she really doesn't like when I'm going off road. You know what's funny is as soon as you said a lot of things, I thought, well, that's your typical cat. I mean, they have so much attitude; <laughs> it's incredible, and they'll have all kinds of things. Of course, not just one thing. The cat will have all kinds of things that you probably oh, have yeah, to change yeah. for. Yeah, um, uh, you really have to kind of adapt to it. So she does get cranky, not always, but sometimes she gets cranky just in the morning when she has to go on the bike because she obviously rather spend her day in the woods catching mice or whatever or just sleeping than going on a bike. So I have that. Um, then I, it happens when we go off-road, especially when we've been riding on smooth roads before and then exchange it to off-roads. She just goes up and she comes out and she tells me off, she meows so loud it's the loudest meow that she can do and um, and um, she really tells me often she does that she, they're, they're really persistent cats are incredibly persistent it's crazy and you'd think it's uh, it's futile that that they make a racket but it's not they win <laughs> <laughs> i actually found myself like going back from roads that i wanted to take and uh, i got back to pavement because she was just getting the upper hand i guess Heat is a big problem. Heat is probably one of the biggest problems that we have. Because um, normally what they would do on a hot day, they would just lie somewhere where it's shady and they would just sleep the whole day and come back out at night. Which is obviously not possible because she's in the tank bag and uh, the sun is shining on the tank bag. So I put a piece of white paper in there that reflects a bit of the sun and then sometimes I put like a, a wet towel or something in there so it cools it down a bit. And then I really, when I'm when I'm standing there, I have to look for a shady spot and um, all these kind of things. So, um, what else about riding the bike? It's really mostly when we start riding the bike, she gets a bit cranky, but then she just gets used to it. And um, I think since we got to Iran, that was the first time I realized she does that. Uh, she actually just started sleeping in there. She just fell asleep. I wanted to show her to somebody. And I lift up the the lid of the tank back, and she doesn't even she doesn't even open her eyes. She's just completely fine. She's like, okay, fine, I'm sleeping. And yeah, she does that now. How do you think the the cat changes your experience? What about when it comes to accommodations or or going places? Um, going places sometimes is just simply impossible. 
I can't take her on a sightseeing tour, especially in the sun for like two hours or something. I could do very small tours with her, put her on my shoulder. Um, so sometimes I would just have to go to a place that I would like to see and just choose to not see it. And then uh, as to hotels, it's different from country to country. In, uh, in Europe, I was camping mostly, so I haven't really got much experience there. And then in Turkey, um, from let's say uh, from about half of Turkey, once I started going to the eastern bit of Turkey, where it's a bit um, a bit hairy, I guess, because of uh, some political conflicts, I had to take hotels, and they were always fine with it. I asked them, I was like, is it okay to take a cat there?" And they're like, "Oh yeah, yeah it's fine." And um, I thought it would be the same once I go to Iran, because they have the Persian cats, the world famous Persian cats. So I thought, like, really, it's going to be fine. I was relieved that Turkey is fine with cats. I thought Iran is going to be a breeze. And then when I got to Iran, I found a really nice place and Mowgli took a liking to it too because there was enough places to, to run around. And I was really happy because I was exhausted after the border crossing. And um, I had a bit of health issues too, like I had a bad stomach. So I found this place and then he's like, um, yeah, but I can't let you stay. And he had really bad English, so he couldn't really explain to me what happened. And then uh, the search for hotels started. I was really looking for a hotel as there was no good place to camp. And I figured it would be impossible. I was lucky on the first night. I found a hotel where the boss wasn't in and they let me stay. And um, then from the, from the next day when I was looking for hotels, I spent like two or three hours on the second day. I spent the same amount of time on the third day every time to just try to find a place to sleep and people just, you know, either ask stupid amounts of money of me, like twice the price, um, or just tell me that it's illegal, that it's not allowed. So, so it was quite difficult. And um, I was getting winter by the time I got to Iran and quite, uh, quite a bit of it is at an altitude of like 1500 meters to 2000 meters. So it was getting quite cold by then. And I ended up camping um, and freezing at night for a few nights until I got to Tehran where um, I found somebody to stay with for like a week to sort out all my things, to sort out my visa problems that I had. And um, from then on, it was kind of fine because I knew what I was in for. And uh, I was, instead of looking for hotels, just looking for campgrounds. And the uh, cold, I found a good solution against the cold. I have this emergency reflective, heat reflective blanket with me. And if it gets really cold, I would just wrap this around me and it would actually do a brilliant job on keeping the heat out and um, make me make me have a warm night. That's in your sleeping bag you're talking about? I put it around the sleeping bag on the outside because really it just sweats too much otherwise. Um, so I just wrap it around. I put it underneath me because the mattress doesn't do a good job at keeping the cold out. And then I put it above me and... Yeah, it reflects all the heat, so I stay warm. So where do you go from here? What's the the plan? Where is Mowgli taking you next? <laughs> um, next stop is India and Nepal. So I'm uh, going to have to get a new visa for Iran, which should be fine. Um, crossing Pakistan is a bit dangerous and a bit difficult, and they don't like to give out visas because of that. But I met the consul here in Dubai, the German consul, and I actually befriended him. And he says, like, oh, no worries, I'll send you a letter of recommendation so you can get your visa. And I sent a letter of recommendation for your friend as well so you get your visa sorted. Uh, then we can go through Pakistan and go into India. 
Oh, your friend. I, I see the friend you're traveling with. I was thinking you were talking about the cat there for a second. No, so, no, she doesn't. I don't think anybody's going to care about her, really. So you just, you just figure, just leave it in the luggage. And, and if you need to, you show the paper showing it's been vaccinated and that's it. That's your approach. Yeah. Yeah. Um, really, from what I've experienced, really, I don't think anybody's going to care. They have different problems there. Any tips for people who might be considering taking their pet with them? Um, phew, yes, uh, you got to be patient. Uh, you got to put up with um, not getting what you want. But if you choose to take your pet, then you really have to take one for the team every now and then and uh, just just go with what's happening. Like you can't take the pet and then regret taking it and hoping to make another decision, uh, have made another decision. So really, you got to be up for it. You got to be in the right mindset for it and just take things as they come. And um, you need the vaccinations pretty much everywhere. Um, rabies vaccination, some places you need more. So best to do a double check on the internet and see what each country wants to wants you to have to take the animal. It needs to be chipped. So it has to have a chip that they can read out with the transponder number that goes back to the passport that you have for the vaccinations. Yeah, what else? Uh, be aware that that might not be easy. <laughs> and if you get to a border where they're saying you can't cross, what's the approach at that point? Um, depends what border it is. Um, most borders, you can just take a different border. Um, if you come in with a boat or a plane or whatever, then this becomes a bit difficult. There's really not much you can do. Just um, try to make the best out of it and try to avoid these situations in the first place where you might not be able to get your pet or where they might take it off you or quarantine it. And do you have approach for dealing with authorities when it comes to the cat? Um, not really, you know. No. Um, be friendly. Now you mentioned patience. I mean, that's that obviously is huge. You got to be patient, yes. And then obviously be friendly, not just on border posts, everywhere you go, just be friendly and be respectful to people and then uh, figure things out. And if somebody tells you that it's not possible, try to find a different solution, try to find another person. If it's a pet that follows you all the time you could put it down and then it would just follow you if that works um it always depends on the pet as well um you could always smuggle it if it's possible um yeah there's many ways try to try the legal way if not uh, try to maybe smuggle the cat or whatever it is over the border but then there might be a problem at the next border so it's always better to have it legal so but most of the times it's not a problem, actually. If you have the right papers, then most of the times it's not a problem. The UAE wouldn't have been a problem if I had the health certificate, which I just wasn't aware that I needed. That's, yeah. Well, so. I would think a cat has to be one of the more difficult animals to travel with. I can picture a dog, you know, being okay. And as a matter of fact, we travel <laughs> with our two dogs, but mainly just in Canada, uh, or only in Canada uh, with the two dogs. But um, uh -huh. a cat, that that's a whole... That's a whole new ball of wax. But it's good it to hear you've got it sorted difficult. out and, you, and you're getting places with it. And um, I guess we'll have to see where the cat takes you next. I guess, yes. So India and Pakistan, India, Nepal. And then I really don't know what I'm doing after that. I have to figure that out. Well, Martin, that's a, a very interesting way of travel. Thanks very much for coming on and talking about it. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Martin Klauka, and uh, he's in Dubai right now, but I imagine that cat's going to have him on the road very soon. Who knows where he's going next? 
We got a link to his Instagram page in our show notes. I just want to remind you this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. The question is, where's your cat taking you on your next adventure? Hey, I want to give special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. As I said at the start, we would love to have your support for a patron. I mean, really consider that. Drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com to check out the show notes for this episode and all of our episodes and listen to all of our episodes as well. As well, you can see the links on there for our raw show that comes out once a month. You have to subscribe separately to that one. Now it's uh, time to get out there and ride your bike. I'm Jim Martin. See you next week. I'm Steph Jevons from One Step Beyond, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 